0: Hi everyone, this is Sonia from the Ukraine Crisis Appeal Committee. You're about to hear a podcast interview with Kiralee Manning. She is an Australian occupational therapist from Curtin University who has a significant passion and has worked many years to help Ukraine. Now, The Crisis Appeal is hoping to deliver a much-needed occupational therapy training program, partnering with the Ukrainian Society of Ergotherapists, Kiraly Manning and Curtin University, as well as the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. Listen now to find out more about the program, what occupational therapy is, Kiraly's work, and how funds raised will ultimately help many Ukrainians in need and change lives. Thanks very much for
1: having me, Sonia. Real exciting for me to be able to um, be able to explain a little bit about the work that we've been doing in Ukraine. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. I'm passionate OT and I've been working in Ukraine for almost 15 years now and I have a real um, heart for the people of Ukraine. I kind of fell in love with Ukraine by accident um just going over there with some friends to have a look around and never stop going back really but um yeah it's been really interesting from an occupational therapy perspective to see how things have really changed over those 15 years and how now the people of ukraine are really asking for occupational therapy assistance so i've been an ot for almost 25 years and a lot of people often wonder ah oh, like what what is an OT? You know, the only reference they have is really, I don't know if anyone's seen that movie Downsizing with Matt Damon, but um, oh, yeah. he's, he's actually you know an, an OT. And it's really funny because in that movie, he sort of befriends this woman purely by accident because he wrecks her, uh, her orthoses for her, for her leg. And um But he ends up being a jack of all trades, you know, and he goes around helping a whole lot of people where she lives, doing a whole lot of things. And so people are often a little bit confused about what OT actually is. But essentially it's really about helping people to do all the things they need or want to do in order for them to live meaningful lives. And so within the health sector, that falls within the rehabilitation sector, I guess, Um, And it can be working with the elderly or working with, you know, people with multiple sclerosis, working with children with severe disabilities. And certainly my background in Ukraine has been working with abandoned babies and children with disabilities in orphanages. And so it's really about not just seeing getting people better, you know, from a medical point of view, because often people are living with long term chronic disabilities or illness, but really tailoring our approach to say, well, despite your diagnosis, you know, what are all the things that you would love to be doing that are important to you? Sometimes it's going to the toilet, you know, um, sometimes it's showering by yourself, sometimes it's being able to go back to work or go to school. Um, and so our job really is to facilitate function in those things that are important to
0: people. Great. Great. Okay, so there you covered a little bit um, about what OT is Mm. and why it's important. Um, And, of course, as part of the Ukraine Crisis Appeal, we're looking to raise a significant amount of money, being $105,000, to get a training program happening. Um, And, of course, so you would have some key stories of how OT has changed lives in Ukraine. Can you touch on that?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. I think it's been very exciting to start to see the development of the profession in Ukraine. When I was first there in 2005, you know, there was no, you know, nobody you speak to would know what OT was. Um, And I've really watched it, particularly, unfortunately, since the outbreak of war in Ukraine. And people have seen that real need for rehabilitation um and that quality of life, particularly for the young men, you know, returning from the front that, okay, medicine has been able to save their lives, you know, um, but now they have a significant head injury or they have a spinal injury because of where they were shot. And, you know, the country is saying, well hang on, we need to be doing better for our, our veterans, you know, that they, they're now got permanent disabilities or they need good rehabilitation you know, we don't know how to do this. And so they've been relying, you know, a lot on, um, you know, a few international experts and are really looking far and wide to say what kind of assistance, you know, can we be providing our veterans? And because it's been a huge number of people all within a short space of time, you know, the, the need has really really grown in ukraine so um, what we've seen happen over there is that um, the world federation of occupational therapists have helped local health professionals to form an ot society in ukraine it's called the ergotherapy association um, it's just a term that seems more palatable for Ukrainians, because of course the word occupation can also mean, you know, being occupied as in, you know, someone taking you over. So it's the same in France, actually. That the translation is is also ergotherapy, um, and health professionals who now have a lot of access to international, you know, health options via the internet are seeing that. Hang on, you know, these guys need to be able to get back to work. They need to be able to, you know, be transferring themselves from their wheelchairs to their beds, or you know, to be able to cook dinner or whatever it is that is important for them. Maybe they just want to go out and about and see their friends. Um, you know, they don't want to be hidden away. Certainly in the work that I've done in orphanages, it's it's been a joy to watch orphanages be transformed. You know, we would often take teams of um, OT students into orphanages in rural Ukraine, and these children are left all day, every day with, you know, very lovely, well-meaning carers who are very poorly paid and unfortunately not very well educated and certainly love the children, but there's not a lot more that they can do for them. Um, You know, unfortunately, child abandonment, particularly for children with disabilities, is still quite common in Ukraine. And so we would see these children develop a lot of secondary problems that we don't see here in Australia. So it may be, you know, muscle and joint contractures because they're really poorly positioned. Um, it could be sensory issues because they're so under simulated, you know, all day. So you would see children who would be, you know, knocking their heads against the wall all day. And as we've gone in and our approach has been very much to not provide one-on-one treatment because when we don't live there, personally, my view is that um, going in and providing treatment and leaving is not not ethical um, because unless there's someone who can pick up the work and continue it, um, why start something that you can't finish? So we very much took the approach of upskilling care workers within these orphanages to help make everyday activities more therapeutic. I mean, these are the approaches that we use in Australia. So we teach parents, for example, every time you pick up your child, it's an opportunity to get them in a better position. When you dress, when you play, um, what sensory issues does this child have? What positions do they need to be in? And how do we, for example, make feeding therapy? You know, unfortunately, it's not uncommon in lots of countries for people to see that therapy is something that you go to once a day in a room with somebody with a white coat, you know, and when they're touching you and doing their magic with their magic wands, that's therapy. But actually, particularly for children with disabilities, um, every single second is is therapy. Every single time a child is sitting, lying, standing um, is an opportunity to tell the brain, this is normal positioning, this is good um, for the muscles, you know, this is an opportunity to build bone density. And so, look, it's, it's been a lot about relationship as well as information. But what we've seen, Sonia, over time is, is carers really get on board. And it not only makes their job more enjoyable, but as they see that the children respond, and that they don't develop those secondary problems, that they have a much greater quality of life Um, because part of the program also has been helping to train local volunteers, often church groups in villages and things, to go in and keep spending time with the children utilising the same techniques. Um, It's really lovely just to be able to back out of those places after two or three years and go, you know what, my job's done. You know, we don't need to keep going back in here because they're doing it themselves.
0: Wow. And, and in terms of those um, places that you've been, of course, there may be some really key individuals, like stories that really stick in your mind. Do you, do you have one of those or two of those? particular uh, the individual who had an amazing trajectory of um, improvement?
1: There's always those particular kids, you know, I mean, it's difficult, you know, because there's so many over so many years, but there's always those few that really, really stick with you. And there was one um, little girl who I met the very first time I went into an orphanage in Novograd, Walensky, and that was Bogdanla. And she was a bit older than a lot of the babies in there, but the director of the orphanage didn't want her to move on because he was worried about what would happen she was in the baby's room she was probably at the time that we met her maybe three or four she was in a cot left all day severe brain damage severe um, cerebral palsy and they would basically use the bottom of her cot you know where her feet should be as storage you know of nappies of things because you've got to realise these places are tiny and there's really not a lot of room. And essentially they would just keep her there and ignore her all day because they were so busy. And they would say things like, oh, um, yeah, don't, we'd you know, who's this child and, um, you know, what's what's going on with her? And the the carers and the drifts say, look, don't worry, she's going to die soon. Um, We'd rather that you didn't spend time with her because there's all these other children that need your attention. and. you know, obviously not that day, but over the next couple of days, I went to see the director and said, look, I'd really love to work with this child. I actually think, you know, she has so much potential and so much we could do in terms of helping her quality of life. She's clearly uncomfortable. Um, and he's like, oh, you know, don't worry. I've never seen her smile. I've never seen her interact. Like, I, I, you can do what you like, you know, because they're very polite. You know, they never say no. <laughs> you can do what you like. But don't worry, because she's going to die soon. And I said, okay, well, she's not dead at the moment, <laughs> you know, so, so let's do some work with her. And it was hilarious because the carers just thought we were completely bonkers, that we wanted to spend time with this child. Um, and I think the message that it sent to them was, oh my gosh, like these people come from halfway across the world and they want to spend time with this child. This child with no potential, as far as they could see, um, and certainly from a therapeutic point of view, she was never going to regain function. <laughs> you know, the you know, as, as a therapist, the the you know, um, our our approach with her was really about preventing any further secondary complications and making her more comfortable and improving her quality of life. So we got her out, and we got her out on the floor. We put down big, um, you know, quilts because. They were very anti us being on the floor, of course, because in Ukraine it's, it's culturally quite offensive and we just had to explain to them Look, there is nowhere else and, you know, we will put down some quilts, we will make sure they get washed, but we need to be positioning her well um, and it's the only place where we can really do it. So I, we, we actually worked with her for, for the five weeks that we were there um, and by about day two or three, the reason why she sticks in my mind is she um, started to laugh. Like we were playing games with her. We were essentially working on positioning, but at the same time, which is a very occupational therapy approach, we were playing games um, and would just try different things to see what she enjoyed. And she loved bubbles. Um, She loved music and, you know, she loved anything that she could get a response from because she was just so sensory depraved, you know, so when Mm -hmm. she could, we could move her arm and she could touch something and it made a noise. It was like, you know, the most simple thing, but it was like her, her whole eyes, her whole face let up. And it was about day two or three, I think, and she laughed. and And she laughed so hard and we were just crying. And I went to the director and I said, oh, we're working with Bogdana today. And she was laughing. And he said, no, I don't believe you. You know, like she's been here for three years. I've never seen her laugh. She's, you know, I said, no, no, she's just has not been given the opportunity to laugh. And it was just beautiful because then we went back six months later. Yeah, well, of course, Bogdana wasn't, wasn't gone. She was still there. And again, we said, we really want to work with Bogdana. We want to find some local volunteers to work with her. We want you to work with her. Oh, no point. She's going to die soon, you know. Well, we worked in that orphanage for three years. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was still going strong, much more comfortable, a much, a much happier child because now, over time, you know, really challenging that thinking about the value of this child by the volunteers that go in, by the carers now. Yes, it takes more time, um, but you know, when they just see how happy she is and how much more engaged she is, you know, and I think it's beautiful because it's not a story of therapeutic success, you know, she didn't get up and walk, <laughs> you know, she can't shower herself, she can't toilet herself, it's not like she was ever going to regain that level of function but it's about the dignity of the human spirit and the value um, that this child has and that, yes, her capacity to participate is limited but she should still be given that opportunity, you know, to participate to her fullest. Um, and it's been really beautiful to watch her be able to do that.
0: And, and I'm assuming that links to the overall principles that are behind OT as well, which is to live your best life. Um, was that the main value around OT? Yeah. I mean, By I these think, interventions? Yeah.
1: I mean, obviously it's about maintaining or improving function as much as possible. Yep. And that will depend a lot upon the prognosis, you know, so if somebody has had a stroke um, and, you know, their prognosis for recovery is good, then, you know, we'll be going really into a facilitation rehabilitation mode to get that function back. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody has a degenerative condition, perhaps they have multiple sclerosis or arthritis. Um, it might be that we take a compensatory approach where we go, okay, well, um, there's a whole lot of components of this task that you can't do, but there's these ones that you can or perhaps as a piece of equipment that could help modify. Um, you know, we can help you perhaps do this task with one hand or um, whatever it takes for them to be able to do that, if that's what they want to do. Um, and sometimes, like I said, with some children with severe disabilities, it's about um you know, really that quality of life approach that, you know, what is the main occupation of a child? Well, the main occupation of a child is to play. It's how children learn. It's how they interact with the world. It's how they make sense of what's going on around them. And, you know, children with disabilities who are left all day have no way to participate in their most important occupation. And so our job as therapists is to help them as much as possible to participate in that occupation of play. Um, for some of the children, it's about, well, their occupations are also self-carer. We might be helping them to feed or to toilet or to dress. Um, for other children who aren't in, in orphanages and who are a bit older, it might be going to school. How do we facilitate that as an occupation? So our job is really about finding out what are the occupations that are important to this person given their, you know, stage of life, but also given their priorities. You know, I find a lot working, uh, in Vietnam, for example, that uh, being more Eastern, they're very happy for other members of the family to, you know, um, perhaps help them get dressed. You know, whereas in the West, we're like, oh no, you know, we have to be independent. <laughs> you know, and so I think part of being OT is about being person centred and say, okay, well. It doesn't matter if somebody helps you get dressed, but what's something that you would really like to be able to do on your own? And it might be this lady that I saw a couple of weeks ago in the middle of Vietnam said, I just want to be able to go to the toilet by myself. You don't want my husband to have to take me to the toilet. And I'm going, of course, who does not want to <laughs> toilet by themselves? So, you know, and, and we did and we got a, um, a toilet raise. We went through some techniques. And so it was about about tailoring that occupational approach to her priorities. Um, and that's very much the same when we go into orphanages. How do we um, fit in with the current structure of the orphanage, how they work, um, what's their daily routine? How do we make life easier for the carers, not harder? You know, because often when you're changing things, it's very inconvenient. Um, but also, to you know, to help the children to be able to do more, if they can do more and they can participate more, how can we facilitate that?
0: Yeah, terrific. Okay. So based on what you said, we've heard of how OT functions and, and of course, a really particular key story of, you know, somewhere like where there's been an application of OT and how that's been life-changing. So why now are we choosing to do, because you're going over there and doing, you know, some um, therapeutic interventions in mm-hmm. terms of, the crisis appeal why are we choosing to do a training program versus sending let's say a bunch of you know 20 of you (laughs) to (laughs) give therapy (laughs) yeah no it's a good question and I guess
1: ultimately it's about sustainability Sonia you know it's um I have seen obviously as an educator I'm passionate about training um I'm also passionate about upskilling other people and I've seen it work You know, I have worked, as I said, with three or four orphanages now, where we've taken the approach of upskilling others, and that's sustainable. It means that you know um, they're not relying on these, oh, you know, amazing experts from the West that can come with their magic wands and make everything perfect. Um, You know, which sounds a a little bit facetious, I know that, but that often can be the mentality. Like, you come, you fix. Oh, hang on, now you've gone, I can't do anything. Um, And you know, but. I mean, Ukrainians are incredibly um, passionate, you know, and so capable and they're desperate to learn and they're particularly passionate now, the health professionals I've been working with, about OT and about learning OT techniques. And they are saying, please come, please come and show us and teach us to do it. Um, And because I've seen it work so well with people who aren't trained, health professionals like orphanage workers, I have worked with parent groups in different places around Ukraine where parents have said, okay, we have children with disabilities, we don't want to abandon them, you know, how do we look after our children at home? And, you know, I've seen these groups unbelievably transformed, you know, parents who have something in common, um, who learn about, for example, positioning or different therapeutic approaches for their children and then they become the trainers, Sonia, when the parents then start training other Parents, oh my gosh, like they are the best people to be doing it because they are—they understand. I don't know what it's like to have a child with a severe disability, um, but when the trainers, the trainees become the trainers, it's—you know—and none of this stuff is rocket science. You know, like, <laughs> I know perhaps a lot of occupational therapists would disagree with me, and perhaps—and there are obviously more complex areas. But a lot of the basics, like I said, we teach parents here to do because we understand that therapy is a 24-7 intervention. So I've seen training work with parents. I've seen it work with orphanage workers. And now there's people with backgrounds in, say, physiotherapy or nursing or speech therapy who are saying, hey, we want some of these occupation-based techniques. We want this evidence-based rehabilitation and we want to be able to do it because we know that it works. And so when you go in and you train others, and, of course, with this particular proposal, we're not only looking at training health professionals in, in occupation-based rehab techniques, we're looking then at training trainers so that this course can become sustainable So and it can repeat itself. Um, I mean, the ultimate job, I think, and for me, is to be able to walk away and say, you know, I'm not needed anymore because, you know, there's a whole group of Ukrainians who want to be able to do this stuff for themselves. And I don't believe it's right to create dependence on external experts when you have extremely intelligent, passionate people who, uh, you know, want to be able to do the best for their own people. I mean, I do a lot of therapy in Vietnam, do a lot in Ukraine, and you know what, you lose a lot through translation. My Ukrainian is terrible. (laughs) I'm very sad sad to admit my Vietnamese is even worse. Um, So, you know, for rapport, for efficiency, you know, these services really need to be provided by people who live there, who speak their language and, you know, it's it's a far better investment because ultimately you're investing money and time so that you don't have to invest money and time anymore.
0: Fair enough. And then, of course, with yeah, as you mentioned, sustainability. Mm. Hopefully it will just facilitate itself within the country. So we don't have to go back. That, that's the best outcome, kind of like a Mary Poppins kind of thing, right? <laughs> you know, so we're not needed yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think
1: that, that's absolutely right. And we're seeing the development of the profession, you know. I mean, there is now... Ukraine, as I said, has its own ergotherapy society. They're working with the World Federation of OT. There are a couple of universities that have established um, and are in the process of establishing occupational therapy degrees. Um, So we are seeing things change and change quite rapidly, really. Um, However, it's going to be a number of years before um, there are OT graduates Ukraine and what we've seen in other countries where the profession is developed is that naturally a lot of these people will stay in the cities where there are jobs you know and and jobs that they obviously need to earn a living as well and so the approach that we're taking which is similar to what we've done in in Vietnam with this particular course is that there's also a need to provide short-term training for people who are already health professionals who are already working you know, with people with disabilities um, who can, um, I guess, add to their repertoire of uh, skills that they already have, these more occupation-based rehabilitation techniques. So the idea is to do this short eight-week intensive course where they end up with a whole lot of really really practical skills so at the end of the day they're not degree-based occupational therapists but they Mm -hmm. have a whole lot of extra skills that they can utilize and it's what we call a scaffolding approach where we say you know whilst we wait 20 or 30 years there to be enough occupational therapists um, let's upskill others in parts of what we do, particularly to help and reach people in the more rural areas. Um, And we've certainly seen it work very well in Vietnam. So I um, uh, was part of a team that designed and ran this course uh, in Vietnam in 2016. It's since been run again and it's now about to be, well, it is in the middle of being run for a third time and not by us you know, um, it's now being delivered by local people because we've supported the trainers to facilitate um, the curriculum. And, I mean, even better, hey, than to, to actually have the course in your own language, you know, how inefficient it is to use translators. I mean, it's great for a laugh, um, but it takes twice as long. And so, you know, it's this journey of um, these, these rural therapists that I'm working with there who, you know, They've got families, they can't go back to university and study for three or four years um, in the city, you know, but what they do want is some really practical skills that they can use right now. And this is really the, the beauty of this approach.
0: Right. So you mentioned short term. So this is going to, that was leading into my next question about mm. what, it, how will this program run in Ukraine specifically? So let's yeah. say we, we do it, we raise the $105,000. Yep. What, what what would be the next steps and, and what would be the yeah. best, uh, the benefits?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the beautiful thing is that the curriculum already exists. So um, because we, we developed it um, in conjunction with an American um NGO in Vietnam. So I would be working with the Ukrainian Ergo Therapy Society to um, amend the curriculum to be more Ukrainian. You know, particularly a lot of the case studies and things like that would need to be changed. And we've already started doing that. Um, the real important next step is to have it translated. And we're talking about copious amounts of documentation here because every day, every minute of that, um, that course and in, across a whole lot of different areas of OT, including paediatrics, um, uh, you know, neuro, OT, phys, rehab, we, the, you know, it's a big uh, psychiatric component to the course as well. Um, so all of that material needs to be translated. And, you know, for every class, it's not just about the lectures, it's about the case studies, it's about the supporting documentation, the assessment tools that we're teaching them to use. And we need consistency. You know, we need this translation to be very good. Um, And the Ergo Society have done really well at having a glossary of occupational therapy terminology. So we really want that to be consistent across the country. So once the documentation and everything was translated, the next steps would be um, we would basically the the course consists of two three-week blocks of information. So three weeks would be done full-time. Um, over basically online, so online live classes via Zoom. Because the forty participants that are looking at attending are from ac- from across the whole country, yeah, you know, which is exactly what we want. We don't want people from just one region. We want um, people who put their hand up to attend who come from the east, from the west, from the central, from the south, and um, they would participate via Zoom. And then the second three weeks would be full time in-class practice of, you know, all the theoretical content that we've gone through online. Every one of those units then has practical component that we practice, practice, practice. This includes um, examinations. So, you know, they actually would need to pass the content, both theory and practical. And then the last two weeks of the course is um, to to work in groups and they would actually have two weeks of what we call practicum where they are working in a particular area of rehabilitation under the supervision of an occupational therapist where they get to problem-solve in situ how they would design a more occupation-based treatment program for their patients that they're seeing Um, and we obviously would help them and coach them through that. So that's you know, the dream, I guess, Sonia, of you know, <laughs> what it would look like. But also part of the program is about, it would be to identify people and, you know, we already kind of know who they would be, um, who would then become trainers. And then within 12 months we want to replicate the course, delivering it to another 40 um, health professionals. But we would support and help these trainers to do the training. So that by the end of the 18 month period now would be, we've had 80 people go through the course, but we've also had um, two people trained and mentored, you know, again, a lot of that would be online so that, you know, we're keeping costs down um, to support them to, to run it again. And so what we've worked, it sounds like a lot of money and, and I appreciate that it is a lot of money, but you know, if we get 80 people trained in an 18 month period, it basically works out to $1,300 per participant, you know. Um, So, you know, it's it's not a lot of money to create a massive impact. If you think of those 80 people who might see, I don't know, six to eight patients a day, then that means that over that 18-month period they've seen 150,000 patient sessions, you know. And so, and if you calculate the cost there, you know, that's, a cost of 70 cents per treatment session over that 18-month, two-year period. So, you know, sometimes numbers can be scary and I think, you know, I appreciate that it is. I appreciate it's it's a lot of money to ask for. But you talked about why this approach, you know, why train. There's your answer. You know, you can... Um, upskill you can make it sustainable but you know ultimately it's so cost effective because you know you're not creating uh, a, a, you know a need for people to come over at a great expense you know for in terms of time in terms of you know the cost of travel um, but you know it's more than about cost i think it's also my heart is for that dignity as well for for people and there's absolutely no reason why ukrainians can't be providing this type of of, of therapy, they're more than capable, they're the best people to be doing it, much better than me, um, because they're Ukrainian, you know, and they're locals and they live there. So, you know, one of the challenges we've had with the Ergo Society, they had their first conference this year, and it was really interesting because we had a real heart, you know, they wanted all these experts to come from all over, the, you know, the world to come and talk about OT. And I was sitting in one of the meetings and I said to the, our president, said, you know what, there are some amazing people within your, your society, within our society. Let's partner with them and let's help them be the speakers at this conference. Let's break this dependence on needing all these other people to come and do things, you know. Um, and gee, it worked well. Yes, there was a combination. It always is at conferences of, you know, international speakers. But who better than to tell the stories of Ukrainian rehabilitation than Ukrainian health workers? You know, it's it's inspiring.
0: And and that as well, that the the people who are within the country will also understand the cultural sensitivities that come with some of the practices that need to be implemented. Is that Absolutely. does that ever become a factor? <laughs>
1: It's always a factor, Sonia, because you know no matter how hard you try to be culturally sensitive, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and, you know, I mean, I have learned so much about the Ukrainian culture over the past 14, 15 years, believe me. Um, <laughs> but, and you know, but of course, you know, I can never understand all those little cultural nuances. You know, it took me a long time to realise that I would need to have a good relationship with people to get a child on the floor, you know, which is such a basic thing that we do here in therapy. All therapy pretty much is done on the floor for small children or, you know, as they get older, at desks and things. Um, And in the beginning, I'm like, uh, what's the problem? (laughs) I have no idea how offensive. It was, and that's just a small thing, but gee, it's a big thing. You know, the other thing is I had no idea, and I know it's probably a bit more rural, that I had to ask Ukrainians three times before they would say yes to something. So I'd be saying to one of the carers, oh, you um, you know, would you like me to help you feed this child? Oh, no. Okay, no worries. <laughs> I just walk off, and then I go, "Oh no, are you sure?" And then, and one of my translators very kindly said to me, "Like no, you need to ask again." So I'm like, okay, no, the answer was still no. But the third time, oh yes, yes, that would be lovely. <laughs> Thank you. And then you know, so all those little things, but gee, they matter because they they connect us as people, don't they? And the more sensitive that we can be, the more tailored this curriculum and training can be to the Ukrainian culture, ultimately you know, the more effective
0: it's going to be. See, some of those things even I didn't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, maybe they've changed or maybe it was, you know, specific to those regions, I don't know. but Potentially. I you know, it could be, you know, because I've learned, you know, I, I've worked over, you know, um, in the east, um, you know, in Kharkiv and I've worked in Lviv and, and Kiev and, you know, there's so many little even like regional nuances as well as we have in Australia, right? So um, I only found out a few weeks ago that New Zealanders call thongs jandals, you know. Wow. Yeah. Um, What is a jandal? Well, you know, um, if there's any New Zealanders listening, I'm sure they probably think I'm a bit crazy, but I had no idea. So, you know, we have all these different, you know, nuances as well. So you're spot on. That that
0: really matters. So on that note, in terms of all the things that we've covered, um, we're going to wrap up this podcast, but I would like to give one last shout out to Kiralee for all her amazing work because she's worked in Ukraine even before um, we approached her to to partner on this particular project and help with the funding um, and has gone back as a volunteer even when her funding was cut, which is just amazing. Um, So really big virtual round of applause um, for Kiralee and and the partners that she works with to make this happen. Um, And I implore you all to hopefully donate Um, anything that you can spare, even if it's, you know, um, missing your your morning coffee tomorrow and donating that $5 to the appeal instead, um, every uh, dollar will count in helping us to get this program up, which will have maximum impact for, as you heard, children and orphanages. could apply to veterans who come back from the front, um, the elderly. Uh, So, Really, really please do um, help us uh, run this program because we do need to raise $105,000, but of course, as you heard, we're going to have maximum impact from that um, money raised as well. So much, like $1,300 per um, person trained, 70 cents per patient seen. That, that's phenomenal, phenomenal um, cost savings and impact. And Sanjay,
1: can I just add, I just wanted to thank you and the Australian Federation of Ukrainian um, Organisations for the invitation to to talk about our work. You know, when I first started speaking with you, I remember it vividly, Um, you know, for the first time ever, really, I felt not alone in this work and really felt like the Ukrainians uh, in Australia were wanting to help. And I knew that you always were. And I guess I probably was just not knocking on the right doors. And since we started knocking on the right doors, their response and the support has been overwhelming. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Um, And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, We do, yeah, please do, if you'd like to send us some questions, uh, email sonia at ausyukes.com dot com or if you'd like to donate uh please go to Ukraine Crisis Appeal, uh, org, where you can make a donation online and all donations online are tax deductible if you wish to donate um in another platform other than online please send me an email at sonia at oz oz um and i can help advise on how you can do that thank you uh, we're going to wrap it up there